There are readers and there's listeners, and this one's for the listeners. This is the Red Blue newsletter audio cast for July 21st or 22nd, depending on when we get this out. Exciting update, we're launching a new podcast series. So in parallel to our automotive research analyst series, we're also doing a series called Red Blue Conversations. The inaugural episode is with someone we're both quite excited to have interviewed, Elaine Bertaud, pretty renowned city planner, urban economist, senior fellow at the Marone Institute. So definitely check that out. An author of a book called Order Without Design. Okay, so first thing, Olaf, you open up with a very interesting YouTube video or Instagram reel. Yeah, there were people dancing on top of a Waymo somewhere in San Francisco, I think. Was that an so, edge case yeah. they planned for? I don't think they planned for this edge case. It's a very kind of fun-looking dance. as like people waving flags and... One guy kind of slides down the bonnet, which is hilarious. You but mean yeah, the hood, I, right? The hood of the car? The bonnet. <laughs> I feel like so that's the, the, the point of the word. section. I think you do a good job of rounding up kind of the recent woes. Cruise made big progress launching a four-fare service, but it's been a long time coming, and there are a lot of problems that are popping up. Yeah, the problems seem to be mainly with connectivity. Like their cars seem to lose signal with their servers in clusters. It's like little herds of them getting stuck in the middle of the night because they're only running their service overnight. And so there's like news reports about this and there seem to be a few incidents. seems like part of the problem is when they lose connection, they don't actually know where the cars are, so they're hard to recover. But it seems like a bit of an issue. And it's something that actually is this kind of interesting interview with Anthony Lewandowski, which also has him answering questions about how he avoided jail time, which he handles pretty well. I think it's uh, as a side point, that's like a pretty interesting thing to watch. But he notes that a, there are probably significant breakthroughs that need to be made in, on the technology side before autonomous vehicles can be deployed. And B, that connectivity is a big challenge. And so that's why his startup Pronto is focusing on closed networks, which is an interesting approach. But yeah, it seems like there are problems with AVs. There's also this engineer that wrote a letter to the regulatory authority in San Francisco claiming a bunch of safety issues with cruise vehicles. It's not, it doesn't seem to be confirmed that he's an employee, but yeah, it seems like there's some challenges. Anyway, I think on the whole, AV rollouts have been slower than everybody hoped. And these recent indications don't suggest that they're going to be all that much quicker, even though, as you noted, cruise is crossing some kind of threshold by starting to offer a paid service. Yeah. Next up, we go into uh, transit startups. So all these shared. Yeah. Or well, maybe the term for it is private transit. Yeah. As opposed to public transit. Yeah. This has been a lot of news. Probably the leader in the space is this Egyptian slash Emirati company, Swivel, which is publicly traded. It went out via SPAC. They've expanded through a several acquisitions. The most recent was, I think the largest was like over $80 million. They bought the leader in Mexico, this company called Urban. Another big piece of news recently, I think the most venture-funded company ever in Pakistan was one of these corporate shuttle slash shared van transit, private transit companies called Airlift. They raised $85 million, I think a few months ago, and then closed up shop in the last week or two. And this up was too pivoting, kind of recent. Up to pivoting into quick commerce, right? Yeah, and that I think everyone had to find something other than the commuter shuttles during COVID because just how bad the commute market got and nobody was going to the office. But the thing you're focusing on here isn't so much the COVID challenge, which I think has really hit this industry hard. Most of the companies have had to supplement their businesses in various ways. 
But I think you're more focused on what is the long-term year and what is the integration that will happen maybe over time between the private and the public side of things, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think the point is not to be too much of a naysayer now that some of these companies have survived the COVID wave. There's another existential challenge coming their way. And that is the question of what is the role of a private operator for what looks like a transit service? Before we dive into that, maybe it's worth doing some definitions. Like we were joking around saying private public transit, but like what differentiates this from Uber, right? And how we're dissecting this in this newsletter is basically saying companies that started out offering corporate shuttle services and then eventually branched into a van pool network that over time as they grow with more and more routes starts to look like a public transit network. And it seems like it's quite different between developed markets and emerging markets, yeah? Yeah, so interestingly, one of the earliest movers was a company in San Francisco called Chariot, Chariot, which shut down, I think, in 2019, right before the pandemic, right before they had a convenient excuse. excuse. (laughs) But the fastest growing ones have all been in emerging markets in these mega cities. And it makes sense because these are cities where you've got a rapidly growing middle class, people that maybe can't afford a car or definitely don't want to sit in three hours of traffic in Bangalore or in Sao Paulo or so. And these are frequently cities where you have an underinvestment in public transit. So either the conditions and the speeds of those services are very low or the services just don't exist at all. So it makes sense that in the absence of good public options, these private companies have stepped in. And that's the core arbitrage they have. They're trying to step in for where public options haven't been so available. But beyond just definitions, it seems like there's a real question of how this unfolds. This week also, we had the kind of leaking of the Uber files and all the challenges ride-hailing has faced, kind of battering against transit agencies and governments in various ways and all these rules that have been set up to some extent to to support incumbents like existing taxi services. So there's that's one set of incumbents that might fight these kinds of services. There are also existing transit operators that have what to lose if a new system comes in. But I think even more fundamentally, regulators are suspicious of these kinds of technologies. And honestly, rightly, because basically these startups serve routes where they can make a profit. That's what they're supposed to do. The problem is that Those are routes that sometimes are served by public transit. And if you are taking the people that can pay for public transit and putting them in your service, that just strips out revenue from that transit network and it starts to hurt the public network's financial viability. And the transport networks are networks. There's like network effects. And when you start losing people, you can end up in a downward spiral. And in the emerging markets- Is this so different to health insurance, private medicine, private education? Shouldn't people just have choice? So I think it's very similar. The dynamics probably have a lot of overlaps. I think the last question you have of shouldn't people have a choice, that's I think at the heart of trying to figure out what the right transit mix or transportation option mix should exist in a city. And ultimately you could say that these services, even though they threaten public transit, have put a lot of pressure on public transit. So the first response that San Francisco SFMTA had to Chariot was pretty defensive. And throughout Chariot's brief life, SFMTA was looking at things like banning or outlawing Chariot from overlapping too much with bus routes because they didn't want bus riders to go to the luxury service and risk the fare box recovery on those bus routes. But despite the, some people call it intransigence, other people would just call it defensiveness. Despite that, I think a lot of transit agencies have started to wake up and say, hey, people are looking for 
a variety of service options and maybe like subway, light rail and bus aren't enough and we should actually start looking at some of these vans. Isn't transit in general, especially in the United States, just a terrible service because these services are effectively monopolies. And so the more you have outside operators coming in and offering alternative services, that seems like the only force that's creating change. It's not even US transit agencies are looking at places like Japan and Singapore and going, how do we replicate those services? It seems like the only thing that forces them to move is when a service like this comes in. And their first instinct, and in the case of Chariot, they were successful, is maybe to kill the service rather than to do something more constructive with it. That's a really good point. Look, I think the reason that transit service in the US sucks is because of the way we build our cities and land use. And it's we're, we live in very low density cities, so it's really hard to run mass transit when you don't have people starting with hundreds of people in a, at a bus stop or a subway stop. But I think the response that you're seeing, if anything, Chariot said, okay, if you don't have high density, instead of running fixed line bus routes, do what people now call demand responsive transit, where you run these smaller buses and you have variable routes that are more like you can order a bus at a time. And you, if enough people order over a 20 minute window, then the bus shows up. All these new products, if anything, should be instructive of what transit agencies should be starting to look at in terms of offering new products to, to close the gaps. But um, yeah, so I, you could look at it from the agency's perspective and say these people are destroying our network, you know, what little of it exists. Or you could look at it from myself as a consumer. I'm like, yeah, fixed line bus services don't always work for a lot of things. Yeah, and I think maybe the emerging markets are an even more interesting example because you don't have all this incumbent infrastructure creating a default that needs to be defended. But there's basically like green space because you don't have high car ownership rates. So that's one mode that isn't necessarily a default mode. And then you also don't have developed transit networks. So maybe you can build something way better than transit in most places through a network like Swivel. That's the dream. And when you and I met Mustafa and even Joao and the people at Irvine, like everyone in this space is pitching a vision of we want to fix our cities. Everyone has a very pro-social message. We want to build an inclusive transit option that people can get to jobs and opportunities and everything. They're almost speaking as if they're politicians or they're running for office, which is a very interesting dynamic I think you see in, in mobility companies. I think the question will be in emerging markets, there is green space now because state capacity has been low or for corruption or whatever other reason, services haven't been rolled out. But cities like Delhi, cities like Bangalore, there are metros coming about, there are bus systems. And so one day, and this is the point we're making, these companies have written out COVID, but one day government agencies are gonna come in and say, hey, this is our role. We're supposed to provide these services. And then they're gonna suddenly probably have to deal with the same thing that Chariot had to deal with. So we kind of lay out a different way you could look at trying to address this market five years out, if and when that government resistance starts to show up. If you think about, you're talking about this in inevitability, the government needs to step in or inevitably will, but shouldn't we be fighting that to some extent? Don't we want innovators to be building out our transit networks rather than governments. It seems like for the most part, there's obviously a few exceptions. There's some cities that seem to be exceptionally well managed from a transit perspective, but by and large, and this is an interesting point that Milton Friedman makes about markets and liberal systems is they're not necessarily perfect. There's all these inefficiencies that come in through multiple services operating, et cetera. But governments are often worse than that outcome because 
they try to control things. And this is something that interestingly came through in our podcast discussion with Elaine Batard, because it's, for instance, the, this example in Hanoi, Vietnam, where Hanoi has arguably really good housing stock because people commute on mopeds and the mopeds allow more traffic to go further so people can live more spread out, so to speak. There's more land space available for people. But the regulators in Hanoi do not realize that this is an advantage. They think these things are noisy or bad in various ways and think that the way to do development is through cars. So often the people making decisions for other people in these transit agencies are actually removed from the reality. And so the point that Milton Friedman makes is that individuals making decisions on an individual basis for themselves are usually in the best position relative to regulators in, a, in an ivory tower to decide what's good or bad for them. Yeah, I think that is a really powerful argument for why transit agencies should not immediately shut things down. I think that I'm trying to imagine a middle ground here where transit agencies can be more responsive to what their residents want. And when they see services coming up that people clearly want to pay for, ask themselves, hey, maybe we should be trying to replicate this or see how this fits in versus just crush it. I think the reason... The, I think the best case in favor of governments doing at least something in the system is transit is a public good, as in there's something beneficial to having people be able to move around beyond just what they're willing to pay for the service and what the service can do. There's something that government money can subsidize that creates public good. And that is the government is in a unique place to make that monetary allocation in order to invest in that public good. And the question really seems to be, how do you allocate money from the government or from some kind of central reserve in order to create that public good, rather than having this kind of free for all of private services, which seem to lead to definite unequal outcomes, as you pointed out, with charity and other services, and yet still allow the creativity or innovation that happens with private services that regulators seem relatively unable to, to create. Yeah, I think that transit agencies today are very much, at least in the US, they talk about equity as like a top consideration because I think a lot of why they exist is to provision a public good. To your point, the question is, are they good at provisioning the public good? And to Elaine's point about optimizing for the wrong thing or, or using the wrong heuristic to measure success or failure, if your success or failure as a transit agency, is the bus that I'm running on this route profitable, able to pay for itself or not, and Chariot is making it harder, all you're gonna do is defend that bus. Versus if your real measurement is, are we getting as many people as possible to move relatively quickly, safely, and affordably around our... If you start to look at the bigger picture, you might realize that the fixed bus route starts to make sense of the highest density corridors. But in fact, the things that these services are pointing out to you are that these smaller van-like services might actually work a lot better in some of the peripheral parts of the network. And so we introduced in the newsletter the second way. We call it like co-opt or be co-opted by governments. So we talked about Swivel and Orbvon and these service providers, but there's all these startups now, some of which are multi-billion dollar companies in the private markets, like Via and um, Optibus and MoveIt, that are selling software to agencies who have been woken up and who want to do more. And they're saying, hey, use our software to actually do all these services, improve bus service, launch shared van service, et cetera. That's like another approach that you have to, to offer the products in this market. You, you've got this great 
very Prescott image that you pull up of three different London buses, all with different transit operators, logos on those buses. And everybody looks at London buses and thinks that it's just a uniform thing. They look very distinct, very red and double deck and big. But it's interesting to think that this model actually is quite mature in many transit services where there is some kind of division between a centralized authority that's managing planning and allocations and some kind of fare box subsidization too. And yet there are private operators that are running, so to speak, under the hood. You could make comparisons to like the defense industry. The government doesn't have to make all the weapons. They need to figure out what does our military need and then let's run a bid to see who can get us the most effective weapons at the best price. The companies that run the London buses, like Arriva, which is a German company owned by Deutsche Bahn, Metroline, which is a Singaporean company, RATP, which is the French company, they're not attractive startup investment type companies. They don't really do anything other than run buses, right? There's not Under much margin concession there. model. Yeah, it's purely a concession model. But we also look at some other startups like Chalo, for example, which is in India, and emerging market company focused on rapidly growing middle class, in some ways has a lot of parallels to Swivel and Urban, but definitely is working in that second model where they're trying to work with governments as opposed, and I'm not saying Swivel and Urban are working against governments in any way, but Chalo is starting conversations in order for them to launch in Mumbai, for example, their whole MO is to go to the government and say, hey, can we actually take over your bus routes? you can pay us what you would normally expect to pay to run the service and we're gonna run it better because we'll offer an app and we'll offer contactless payments, we'll offer a loyalty program. And so it's an interesting model where nobody knows who Arriva or RATP are in London. And those are not very necessarily high margin businesses, they're just bus operators. There is a model though where like Chalo, the startup in India can have a consumer facing sort of digital native brand can run a service like Swivel or Van, and yet do so in cooperation with the government and ideally, hopefully, avoid the fate that Chariot had. So maybe an interesting connection to this is what's happening with e-bikes in Europe, where if you think about it again, governments is in this role to allocate resources in order to generate certain outcomes. It's interesting that e-bikes are outpacing electric vehicle growth by 2x, right? There's about 5 million e-bikes that were sold in 2021 in Europe and less than 2.5 million, like 2.3 million electric vehicles. The electric vehicle subsidies are about 2x the cost of even a high-end e-bike. So it's- Are there even e-bike subsidies, by the way, or do people just buy them without any subsidization? I, it, I'm, I'm not an expert in what's happening in Europe on, on e-bike subsidization, but my understanding is like through employers, you can get a subsidization in places like Italy. So there are things that are happening on the subsidization side. There's a conversation that's happening. But if you think about it just in terms of raw dollars, it's an, un, it's an extremely unequal outcome in the way that you just suggested governments are supposed to avoid creating, right? Where the person that makes the decision to purchase the very expensive product, which is also less efficient, like it takes much less energy, which has got a long tailpipe emission or whatever you want to use as your metric, that has, it needs more road space, needs parking space, et cetera, all sorts of digging into public goods using that versus an e-bike which uses less space beyond that the capital that's going to subsidizing this transition is focused almost towards the wrong thing it seems so to draw an analogy to the bus situation it's like instead of saying hey government should be looking to transition to a cleaner energy future and safer cleaner mobility what the governments have chosen is we're just going to 
electrified cars. Yeah, and I think it comes back to metrics. I think it's, and this was also something again in, in the podcast discussion with Elaine that, that was interesting. What do you choose to measure really matters because it affects what your outcomes are. And if you choose to focus on electrifying cars, because cars are the unit of measurement of economic progress and success, and I think that's like a very natural bias across the world, then you're not necessarily going to come up with the right outcome, which I think we've written about this elsewhere. We think the thing that we really focus on is electric miles and also the energy used per mile to move goods and people. And moving goods is often a substitute for moving people. It's a very broad way of looking at how our systems of transportation work and what we should be focusing on. But it seems like oftentimes we're focusing on almost exactly the wrong thing. And then we end up with these outcomes. And in some ways, progressive Americans often look at Europe and go like, this is a paragon for how things ought to be. But even there, it seems to be think it seems to be that things are maybe going in the wrong direction. Subsidies for EVs versus e-bikes, really interesting example. What about micro mobility? It seems like it's shared micro mobility is in the same bucket in terms of regulators totally missing the mark. Micro mobility is a natural thing that should be factored, just like swivel could be integrated into transit networks constructively, and you could have coordination and there could be some kind of Fairbox subsidization. It seems like scooters should naturally be part of transit networks too. And the parking space that's needed for them, et cetera, is definitely a public good that ought to be subsidized with concerts, for instance, that people can get there much more easily than if when I go to the Tel Aviv Marathon, by far the easiest way there to go there is on a scooter. But the parking is often like a kilometer away from the start line because they've decided that there needs to be all this separ separation and clearly demarcated areas where scooters need to go. But it weakens the value proposition, even though the value proposition seems so overwhelmingly strong. So it's again a weird kind of swatting down by regulators trying to control things in a way that doesn't factor in the whole picture. Who gets to choose and how close are they to the people that actually get to do stuff or have to do stuff in? Exactly. 